Hello, and welcome to the Anesthesia Compass podcast, one of a series in which we address the special circumstances and needs of our colleagues in the developing world. At the end of this week's podcast, I'm going to tell you about some of the courses in the UK, North America and Australasia that you could attend to deepen your understanding and also, more important, to meet kindred spirits. The topic for this podcast is oxygen. We won't get through it all in one session. The first podcast will be rather more technical and of interest to those of you who are a bit nerdy. The second podcast will be much more practical. It goes without saying that oxygen is a critical resource for safe anaesthesia. That said, it's really quite shocking that in many parts of the world, adequate oxygen supplies are simply not available. In the UK, we've had compressed oxygen supplies for more than 100 years. But in many low-income countries, there are large groups of hospitals that have no reliable oxygen supply at all. That situation has arisen for a number of reasons, and I'm going to just mention a few of them now. First of all, and this is something you probably aren't aware of, In many places, oxygen is rather expensive. In many developing countries, a litre of oxygen can cost between six and ten times more than it does in the UK. If you think about the production process for the oxygen we use in the UK, most of it's made by fractional distillation of air. To do that, you need a large amount of electrical energy to cool the air down to minus 180 degrees Celsius. The cost of electricity worldwide is something that has really only ever moved in one direction, upwards. A little while ago, I visited the main teaching hospital in Accra, in Ghana, where only enough oxygen could be purchased to carry out emergency surgery. They were managing up to six cases a day, and I saw the oxygen bill for the hospital. It was $50,000 per month. Very few countries have the same distribution system with tankers of liquid oxygen that we're familiar with in the UK. In most places, oxygen is only moved around in cylinders, putting additional logistical strain on the system, especially for hospitals in remote areas where poor roads may not be open during the rainy season. Unlike the UK, most hospitals begin by having to purchase their own set of oxygen cylinders. In British hospitals, the cylinders are rented from the supplier, typically British Oxygen, which is a subsidiary of Lind. It's quite common for cylinders belonging to the hospital to get lost when refilling, a journey which often takes weeks or months to accomplish in the developing world. Rented cylinders in the UK are the responsibility of the manufacturers, who also have a programme of regular testing. But where the cylinders belong to the hospital, It's the hospital's responsibility to test them, even though no hospital has the facility to do this. Routine testing involves pressurising the cylinder hydrostatically to a pressure equal to or greater than 220 atmospheres. To the logistical and servicing problems of the cylinders themselves, we then have to add the maintenance required for regulators and gas distribution systems within the hospital. All of these things are dependent on good local technicians being available, and sadly, it's not always the case that they are. 
How do you actually make oxygen? The purist would say that oxygen is only made in the centre of a star by the process of thermonuclear fusion. That's to say it's created by the fusion of smaller atoms to form an oxygen atom. And all the oxygen that we breathe and that our bodies contain originated in the heart of a star that lived and died before the formation of the solar system. A second and equally correct answer is that oxygen is manufactured by tropical rainforests, or rather by photosynthesis in general, since most of the oxygen in the atmosphere has been generated by photosynthesis from much smaller organisms, mostly living in the sea. It's possible to generate oxygen in a laboratory from a chemical reaction, more of that in a minute. And it's possible to separate it from the nitrogen in air, either by fractional distillation or by the process of adsorption used in an oxygen concentrator. Finally, it's possible to separate oxygen from air by electrochemical means. And although this latter method is not much used at the moment, it does have potential as it can produce pressurised oxygen without the need for a compressor. Given the difficulties, it's not surprising that people have looked for more portable and more economical ways of providing oxygen for patients. First of all, it's worth noting that there's no difference in the fractional distillation process used for industrial rather than medical oxygen. If you're sure of its provenance and quality, it's perfectly possible to substitute industrial oxygen for medical oxygen. There is one thing you must be aware of in that case, and that is that industrial oxygen cylinders usually come with an adjustable regulator, which is able to de deliver pressures in excess of the maximum 4 bar required for anaesthetic machines. If you do find yourself using industrial oxygen, make sure that you have the correct regulator and that it is correctly adjusted. Most medical oxygen regulators can't be adjusted, but are preset to an outlet pressure of 4 bar. Using a higher outlet pressure could lead to your anaesthetic machine exploding. It's often the case that manufacturers charge less for industrial oxygen, which is widely used for welding and other purposes. And it's worth noting that some years ago, the government of India was in dispute with the Indian Oxygen Company about the price of oxygen and switched all the hospitals in the country to the use of industrial oxygen instead. Apparently no harm really resulted to any patients. Of course, industrial oxygen is also generated by fractional distillation, the same high-cost, energy, high-energy process we've already noted. It's not surprising, therefore, that people have looked around for more economical and possible ways of generating oxygen. We're going to talk mostly about concentrators. But first, let me ask you if you've ever wondered, when sitting on an aeroplane, what's on the end of the oxygen mask that should drop into your lap? in the event of an in-flight emergency. That device, which provides oxygen for you, is known as an oxygen candle and is no more than a sort of firework which is actually set off when you pull down on the oxygen tube. The oxygen candle generates oxygen by a chemical reaction, just like a firework. The amount and duration generated is obviously limited by the amount of chemical present. And in the case of an aircraft depressurization, the pilot will be at the same time taking corrective action with a steep dive to low altitude, 
so that only two to three minutes of oxygen is required. After that time, either the air will be breathable and the plane will have levelled out, or the plane will not have levelled out and no further oxygen will be required by anybody. I've already mentioned that oxygen supplies in industrialised countries usually come via the fractional distillation of air using essentially a very large refrigerator, very cold, and a process of fractional distillation which is not different in principle from the way that you make whiskey or brandy. Oxygen concentrators are based on a very different technology which is essentially the same one that we see in gas chromatography. When air is passed over a suitable substance that can adsorb nitrogen, that's adsorb with a D, not absorb with a B, the product gas contains only oxygen and a small amount of argon. The process of adsorption is a physical rather than a chemical one, doesn't consume any reagents and is reversible. So it provides us with a low energy means of generating high concentrations of oxygen at room temperature. That's how an oxygen concentrator works. I'm going to try and explain it in a bit more detail now, but that's a really difficult thing to do without any visuals. So if you have internet available, now's the time to look up the Wikipedia article on oxygen concentrators in which there's a fairly simple and easy to follow diagram that illustrates the process I'm going to describe. The heart of the process is the material that's used to adsorb the nitrogen. It's an aluminium silicate called zeolite and its most important property is that it has an enormous surface area on which adsorption can take place. Zeolite just loves nitrogen, so if we pass air through it, the nitrogen will stick and the oxygen will pass through unchanged. Of course, if we continue to pass air indefinitely, all the zeolite will eventually become saturated with nitrogen, at which point no more nitrogen can be adsorbed and the product gas will simply be unchanged air. To prevent this, most concentrators use more than one adsorption column, so that one column can produce oxygen while the second is regenerating, after which a system of valves divert the incoming air to the newly regenerated column. It's normal to carry out the adsorption at a pressure of about four atmospheres, otherwise the columns would have to be much larger. This means that our concentrator needs to have an air compressor together with a filtration system for the incoming air and a means of dissipating the heat generated by compression. It will also need an electronic system to control the switching system of valves since the gas alternates down the different pathways. How do we regenerate the columns? You remember that I told you they were pressurised to four atmospheres and to discharge most of the nitrogen from a near exhausted column it's simply necessary to open a valve and discharge the contents into the room. A small amount of nitrogen will remain sticking to the zeolite and this is flushed out by taking a small flow from the column that's now producing oxygen and blowing it backwards through the regenerated column. Zeolite doesn't wear out and should never need replacing. Indeed, the worst thing you can ever do to a concentrator is open up the zeolite columns because the most difficult part in making a concentrator is the packing of zeolite, which has to be so tight that no gas channelling can possibly occur. 
and this can really only be done by the manufacturer. If you think your concentrator is not working properly, there's one very probable reason for that, which you can easily resolve, and I'm going to deal with that in the next podcast. At this point, someone usually in a lecture asks a very embarrassing question. Embarrassing because it's very difficult to answer without implying that the questionnaire is a complete idiot. It goes like this. Surely, have you noticed that all doubtful questions always begin with the word surely? Surely, if you run a concentrator in a closed room, it's going to suck out all the oxygen from the air and we'll all die. I have to tactfully point out, this is the embarrassing bit because it really was a very stupid question, that oxygen is only being removed from the room by people who are breathing it in. The oxygen concentrator separates the oxygen from the nitrogen before giving a high concentration to the patient. The patient breathes out, still a raised concentration, having removed about 4% of the inspired oxygen, and the rest of it is reunited with nitrogen coming out of the concentrator to reconstitute room air. Coming back to the adsorption process, it is, of course, a bit more complicated than my description so far. If you're interested in the details, I'm going to deal with them next. Nitrogen is not the only molecule that sticks to zeolite. There are two others which are familiar to us. Carbon dioxide and water. The atmospheric level of carbon dioxide is so low that for the purposes of the concentrator we can ignore it. But if your concentrator is in a humid environment, you need to take into account the presence of water vapour. Zeolite loves water even better than it loves nitrogen. In fact, about a quarter of each column in every cycle is used to removing the water from the air passing through the concentrator before nitrogen adsorption can start. Even if your concentrator is turned off, water vapour from the atmosphere may get in and ultimately saturate your zeolite columns. If that happens, it's unlikely that your concentrator can be resuscitated. The way to keep your zeolite dry is to use the concentrator and not to leave it stagnating. We recommend that a concentrator should be run for at least 30 minutes per week, even if not attached to a patient, so as to keep the zeolite nice and dry and in good condition. Use it or lose it. Part of the problem is that some users mistakenly still try to use expensive cylinder oxygen as their main supply and a concentrator only when the cylinders have run out. This is exactly the opposite of what they should be doing. Concentrator oxygen should be the routine, low-cost, regular source of oxygen, allowing people to save the precious cylinder for those occasions when the power has gone off. In addition to nitrogen, oxygen and a variable amount of water, atmospheric air also contains argon in a concentration of around 0.9%. You probably remember that argon is a noble gas with no chemical interactions. It's completely harmless for breathing purposes and its only known biological action is that at a pressure of 15 atmospheres it becomes a general anaesthetic. Since the nitrogen and water are removed by the zeolite, oxygen and argon 
pass through in a ratio of about 20 parts of oxygen to one part of argon. So the product gas of most concentrators contains about 95% and 5% argon. However, if you turn up the flow too high, the concentration of oxygen will fall. That's because small concentrators alternate between columns on a fixed timing, so there's a maximum flow they can deliver before nitrogen breakthrough will occur. If you try to exceed that maximum flow, concentration falls off. For most concentrators, the maximum flow they can deliver is between 5 and 10 litres a minute, and the relevant figure should be marked on the concentrator. Many concentrators actually have a mechanical flow limiter, which will simply not allow you to dial up a flow rate higher than the maximum. So far, I've only spoken about small concentrators, those that can deliver 5 to 10 litres a minute. As well as their vital role in the developing world, they're also now the standard way of providing domiciliary oxygen for patients with chronic respiratory disease. The reason for their success in this situation is very simple. They're much cheaper than sending cylinders of oxygen to patients' homes, even in a rich country. Concentrators equally can come in much bigger sizes, including big enough to supply a hospital pipeline system, which is widely used in Canadian hospitals. They're also used to provide oxygen for steel works or to keep fish alive on a fish farm during a heat wave. If you pass air through a high voltage electrical field, it's possible to ionise the oxygen and then by a process analogous to electrolysis get it to pass to an anode where it reconstitutes into molecular oxygen. There's only one concentrator that works this way at the moment and it only produces 2 litres a minute. But what's interesting is that the reconstituted oxygen is at a pressure up to 7 atmospheres without the need for a compressor. So it could be used with a suitable regulator to feed a conventional anaesthetic machine if the concentrator had a somewhat bigger flow. That's a development worth watching. These podcasts cover some of the topics you can learn about on one of any number of excellent courses on the subject of anaesthesia in low and middle income countries. In the UK, the University of Oxford runs a one-week course based in Uganda called Anaesthesia for Developing Countries. There are one-day courses in Developing World Anaesthesia run by or for the Royal College of Anaesthetists and they run in London, Manchester and Cardiff. In Australasia, there's a one-week real-world anaesthesia course which runs either in Darwin, Frankston or Christchurch. And the Boston Children's Hospital has a course on anaesthesia for global outreach. Find details of these through your search engine. Because of the COVID situation, none of those courses has been able to take place in its normal form this year. These podcasts do not attempt to replicate them, but are just a means of sharing some of the issues that are dealt with on those courses. If you find them interesting and valuable, I hope you do, then do find out about the courses and come along, because you'll learn so much more that way, especially when it comes to the very important hands-on experience that they provide.
Thanks very much for listening. I'd really like you to help me with future podcasts. I need people who are willing to be interviewed or talk about relevant subjects or answer listeners' questions. No great technical skill is required. If you'd like to help, please get in touch. You've probably got my email already, but in case you haven't, it's drmdobson at icloud.com. And for now, from me, it's goodbye. Goodbye.